Our scripture this morning is Mark 10, 17 through 31. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept since my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything to follow you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is one who... There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. We have been making our way through the gospel of Mark here at Bethany Church over these past few months. And it's interesting. There's an interesting contrast in this book of Mark. We're heading into the end of Jesus's life, even as we're heading into Advent season. We've got this uh, contrast that's going to be taking place where we'll be focusing on his birth, even though while our regular Sundays, we're coming towards the end of his life in the gospel of Mark. We're planning on having a great Advent season here at Bethany Church. David and I were planning some stuff this week, those four Sundays in December coming up. I hope you're planning on being here, doing everything you can to be with us for all of them. It's going to be a great celebration. Well, you know the phrase, famous last words, right? You know that phrase, famous last words. And I, I, I think we can see that Jesus is getting towards closer to the end of his life as his lessons are becoming seemingly more intense and, and challenging as he's even realizing he's coming to the end of his time uh, with his disciples before the cross. 
as he taught in these past few weeks, take up your cross and follow, lose your life for the gospel, be the first, uh, be, to be last of all and servant of all means uh, to be first is to be last. His message on hell, his message on marriage and divorce we heard, and today his message on really materialism, possessions, and money. We have to be honest in our understanding with these and our preaching with these tough passages, these hard, challenging words of Jesus, because they come from the mouth of our Lord, don't they? They come from his mouth, even if at times they offend our modern senses and our ears. We want to be faithful to God's word because they come from Christ himself. And they do challenge us. They, they are challenging. I came across, across this quote from Mark Twain this week. It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand <laughs> that bother him. When a passage truly hits home, it's hard, isn't it? It can be hard. But it's also a grace. It's also a grace because it's God speaking into our lives with his truth that he didn't have to give us, but he did. He's revealed himself to us. And so as we come today and as we come at Bethany Church, we say that, we always say that God speaks in his word, doesn't he? And when we open God's word, he speaks to us. It's something we say here from time to time, and we believe that. So as we come to this hard passage today, our temptation is going to be to do one of two things. Shrink down, Jesus is saying, here's the first one. Shrink down, Jesus is saying, about material possessions and the difficulty with it. The second one will be this challenge. He's not really talking about me because that person over there, that person over there, that person over there, they're all wealthier than me. So he's not speaking about me. That's going to be our, our second challenge, that it applies to somebody else. Well, in fact, this rich young ruler, as he is asked, and he's, as he's called, excuse me, is going to ask questions we all need to ask. They're questions every one of us needs to ask. His big one is this, how do you inherit eternal life? I mean, what could be more important than that question? How do you inherit eternal life? How can you be sure that life everlasting will be yours? No more valid question. He knows he's missing something we'll see in a minute in this amazing story, like all of us. He knows he's missing something, even as Jesus says, you lack something. He knows he's in his mind, in his heart, what do I lack? What am I missing? What must be accomplished? What must be done? What must be believed to enter God's kingdom? That's our big questions today. And what gets in the way? For you, for us, for me, what gets in the way of being a Christ follower? He's asking these big life questions, you might call them. Questions that really are questions of worldview, how you view reality that impact our eternal future. And yet we see today he walks away with what I'm calling a great refusal. A great refusal to follow. This morning, we'll see that each of us struggle, as the rich young ruler did, to build our resume, to build our moral resume, our credentials. But this Sunday, we're also going to see, as Jesus lovingly challenged the rich young ruler, he's going to challenge each of us to ask, here's that other question, 
Is Jesus enough for you? Is just Jesus enough? We say that, we believe that. When it comes down to the reality of your day-to-day life, is Jesus, just Jesus, enough for you? Can he be first in your life? Can you come to him in dependency like the helpless child even of verses 13 through 16 that just preceded our passage? Because the one who comes to him today, the rich young ruler, is pretty much the exact opposite of the humble, trusting child Jesus just talked about. The dependent neediness of childhood versus this independent, self-sufficient, successful man that comes to him. They're there to contrast for us today. So today we're going to look at, I'm calling them three currencies. It's it's a money day. It's a material day. We're looking at three currencies today. Three different types of currency. Currency is money, how you pay for something to find the answer to these questions. So grab your outline. Hopefully you've got your Bibles open to Mark chapter 10. We've got some fill-ins there for you that like are kind of visual learners or like to write and take notes there as we look today at our first currency and how it impacts us. Here it is. Our first currency is this. We love to find security in the currency of our accomplishments. The things we've done, the things we've accomplished. We, we love to find security in that. We're calling it the currency of our accomplishments, the bank account of what we've done. There's a reason that, how many love moving? I figured we get nobody in here. That's nobody. That's the first question I've ever asked in here where nobody's hand went up. <laughs> What's that? Mine did. Yeah, mine went up. I don't love it. I do not love it. There's a reason moving causes us so much anxiety. There is, or stress. Because when you pack all your things up and hide them away in these boxes and you put them on a truck, especially if you're moving a great distance, maybe somebody's even taken the truck for you. They're my things, you know, my stuff. It's in boxes and then it's on this truck and now it's gone and I hope it gets there. Sometimes it doesn't. There's some horrific stories of people that have moved and I, a friend of ours and they had to buy new beds because six weeks later they still didn't have their stuff. That causes anxiety. Our stuff. We all struggle with this because on some level we all find a sense of security in our stuff or broaden it out to our accomplishments. It can so easily become the currency that we, we trade in, prove ourselves with, what have I done lately? Sometimes I, I finish a Sunday and I think I'm only as good as my last sermon, you know? Like, that's that, that's that kind of view. My accomplishments, and that's all that matters. What's my moral resume? What have I done? Think about how, how much do little kids cherish and prize their first trophy? Their first trophy. They hold it up. They run it around the house. They show it to everybody. They take it here. They take it there. They hold on to it. They put it up on shelves. That it, you know, it's there when they're 18 and they graduate still, isn't it? They love it. It's an accomplishment. And accomplishments aren't bad per se. That's not what Jesus is wanting us to see today. But when they are our ultimate security, as we're going to see today, they can even get in the way of our eternal life. They can get in the way and derail eternal life even. Jesus is moving on in this story towards Jerusalem for his final showdown now. His final showdown. And this man comes and desperately seeks out Jesus. Let's look at that first verse again. Verse 17. 
As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Clearly, this man wants to see Jesus, doesn't he? He, he, he runs to him. He runs up to him, maybe realizing, oh, Jesus is heading out of town. This is my last opportunity, my last chance to get a word in with this guy. And he runs up to him, realizing that. I mean, you've got to love his attitude on the one hand, doesn't he? He falls down before Jesus, doesn't he? The text says. He kneels before them. Did you see that in there? He comes and kneels before Jesus. He desperately seeks him out. Now, there, if you think about it, there couldn't be a better person for him to ask, could there, about eternal life? There's not a better person he could ask about eternal life. The one who's existed forever, the one who created everything, and the one who is uh, the savior of the world. And we'll see here in a moment, a few moments, that Jesus, he identifies with this man too. As, as he, the text even says, he loved this man. But here's the man's problem. He has the right question, but the wrong question solution. It's our next sub-point there under number one. He has the right question, but the wrong solution. I mean, he even asks it in the right way. He calls Jesus. He says, you're good, good teacher, good rabbi, in a way that could only be reserved for God. Only God is good in any absolute way, and yet he comes up and says in a way that they would have understood, wow, this is pretty strong language, Good teacher, good rabbi, listen to me. But what could be more important as he comes up? How do I inherit eternal life, good teacher? How do I come into God's kingdom, in other words, is what he's asking. How do I have, to even put on our level, how do I have a life with God? That's what he's saying. Good teacher, how do I have a life that I know is a life with God? What could be more vital than that? But Jesus has just finished teaching as we see that it must be received by faith as a, as, as a child, a trusting faith. And we don't know if that man was there or if he just heard that teaching with Jesus. We don't know that, whether he had heard that part of Jesus' message about receiving it in childlike faith. But clearly, he had the wrong solution. How do we know that? Look at his words. He said, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? To put the emphasis on another word in there. What must I do to be in God's favor? What do I have to do? Just tell me, Jesus, I'll do it. I'll do whatever it is. His question implies that he thinks heaven Eternal life, a life with God, is something to be worked for. That's what we see. Accomplished. A resume to be built up so that you receive your, 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 your trophy of heaven. Your promotion. Eternal life. And that's not at all how it's gained, is it? It's not what you do, but it's what has already been done for you. That's the kingdom message. That's the message of the gospel. Do you know, if you think about it, all the religions of the world, every, every other religion of the world other than Christianity is a what you must do to inherit eternal life. 
Everyone. Everyone. I'll say it again. Only Christianity is what says it is based on what Jesus has already done for you. All of them. And yet it's received this way. Truly, I say to you, Mark 10, 15 says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. It's not worked for. It's received. Jesus had just taught that. It's a gift from God. It's a free gift from God. Something you don't have to earn or pay for. So this young, prosperous man comes up. He needs a radical change in heart. A change in the object of his security. A change in his definition of good we're going to see in a moment. As Jesus points out to him. As Jesus now gives him the right solution now. He had the right question. Now Jesus gives him the right solution, but he responds the wrong way. We'll see how he responds. He responds the wrong way, even as Jesus gives him the right solution. Don't you love when you have a question and you ask somebody and they respond with a question? You're like, uh, what do you need me to pick up? You know, what do you need me to do for you? I don't know. What do you think you need to do? Like, tell me what I need to do. You know, that's how Jesus responds to him. He, he asks, and Jesus does that a lot. He, the, the man asks a question, and Jesus responds with a question. Whenever he does that, pay close attention, because he's got a purpose behind it. Well, Jesus doesn't say to him as he comes up and says, good teacher. He doesn't say, well, wait a minute. I'm not good. Only God is. His first response is he says to him, Essentially, why do you call me good if only God is? Are you calling me God? Jesus doesn't say I'm not good, so don't use that word on me. He says, why are you saying good if, if only God is good? Are you calling me God? Jesus points in the very first thing he does is what this man needs is he comes out of such great need. Show me eternal life. What does he do? He points him to God. It's the very first thing he does. Not his works, not his resume, not anything else, not anything he's done. He points him right to God, which is what we need. The very first thing, the only thing really you need, to be pointed to your maker, pointed to God. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus is saying essentially to him, you've got a problem, young man, with your whole idea of goodness and badness. If you're able to look at what you think is a regular man and call him good. Because that moment he probably just looked at Jesus as, well, a great rabbi maybe. But Jesus is saying, if you're able to come up to me and use that word on with me, your idea of goodness and badness is not that clear, probably. You see, the young man knew the answer. He probably knew the answer to his question. As a Jew at that time, how do I inherit eternal life? He would have known the answer. He would have known it. Obey all the commands. Be good and you'll get to heaven. It was a distortion at that time that the law could save you. Be good, keep the commands that was the answer to his question. And as we see, he sincerely believes that he's done that. And he probably was, this man, a really moral guy, a really good man. And what do we see? Jesus goes and challenges him with the last of the six out of the Ten Commandments. The last six. And if you know the Ten Commandments, the first four deal this way, uh, vertically, between God and man. And then the last six deal this way, 
horizontally with our relationships. Jesus doesn't go to the first four. He goes to the, the six that have to do here with our relationships here as he challenges him. And he's probably been good in that sense, really. Externally good to his neighbors. Probably acquired his wealth with integrity, not defrauding others or cheating and lying and stealing. And he says to him, teacher, I've kept all of these. Since my youth even, I've kept them. But then Jesus delivers the ultimate right solution. How is his heart towards God. He took him here, and then he takes him directly with this kind of TKO knockout punch. <laughs> he says, you lack one thing. And oh, don't you think he knew that? Don't you think in his heart he knew that? Yeah, I, things are not right. I got a resume that you wouldn't believe, Jesus. But what do I lack? What do I need? I'm just missing something. And maybe you've sensed that inside your own heart. There's just something not right. Something is broken. Something is off. Something is just in the way of letting you just experience and know that I'm connected to God. He lacked something. And Jesus said, you lack one thing. This man shows us you can be really good on the outside. You can have a life that looks all together. You can have lots of stuff. And money like he did, and you can be miles away from God. Miles away from God. You know that nagging feeling, something is just not right. You're trusting, you're doing to get eternal life. So in love, Jesus says to him, in love now, go sell all you have to give to the poor. He says, find a heavenly treasure. Come follow me. Go sell all you have. You lack one thing. Go sell all you have. Give it to the poor. Find a heavenly treasure and come follow me. Which took this man now to the very first commandment. He spent time on all those other six. Then Jesus takes him right to the very first one. Have no other gods before me. He didn't say the commandment out loud, but that's what Jesus was testing him with. Go sell all your stuff. And give it to the poor. Have no other God before me. Do you want eternal life? Then, then Jesus is essentially saying, then God must be God, young man, he says to him. And nothing can stand in between that loyalty to him. His wealth, at least for this man, was his God. That was his functional, you might call it, Savior. The thing that gave him security, the thing that gave him hope, the thing that gave him uh, some uh, hope for the future and life was his wealth. You see, he was only willing to repent of his sins. He acknowledged, okay, all right, yeah, th those would be sins, but hey, I've kept all those, Jesus. I've kept all, the, all those. But Jesus says to him, your currency, young man, has been your currency, your money. The thing you're banking on to this guy, he says, is, was your, is your bank account. He says, not only repent of your sins, but repent, young man, on the thing that you find your goodness in, too. So not just his sins, but his own goodness, too. Because no one is good but God. Tim Keller, in his commentary on Mark, makes it really clear. He says this, essentially, Jesus is saying, you've put your faith and trust in your wealth and accomplishments. But that very effort's alienate, alienating you from God. 
Right now, God is your boss, but God is not your savior. And here's how you can see it. I want you to imagine a, young, uh, 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 life without money. I want you to imagine life without money. I want you to imagine all of it gone. No inheritance, no inventory, no servants, no mansions. All of that is gone. All you have is me. Can you live like that, young man? That's what he's asking you. Imagine that it's all gone. Come follow me. And all you have is me. Can you live like that? What accomplishment is it for you? And, and really, we're all, we're all wealthy, actually, in relative comparisons. This isn't just about this man. This is about us. What accomplishment is it for you? What is it that if Jesus asks you to give it up, you're not quite sure if you could continue to follow him? What is that thing? It may be different for each and every one of us, probably. What is that thing? Think about that now. What is that one thing that if Jesus asked you to give up, you might think about, I don't know if it, it's quite worth it to follow him. That's your goodness. That's my goodness that I need to repent of. See, it's not just my sins I have to repent of to be a follower of Christ. It's when I find my ultimate goodness in something that a lot of times is good in and of itself. What is it for you? Money? It could be, probably for a lot of us, our stuff, power, looks, health, spouse, your kids, what is it? If Jesus was to say, I'm going to ask you to give that up, but continue to follow me. Well, he gets the right answer from Jesus. The answer was, let God be God. Essentially, as Jesus said, let God be God. And let God be your goodness. But how sad do you see? This is one of the most tragic places in all of Scripture He's there with Jesus. He gets the right answer, and he leaves disheartened and grieved, and he walks away. He refuses to give up his idol. It's a warning for us. A person can live a good life and even endear himself to Jesus, because the man does that, doesn't he? He endears himself to Jesus. Good Lord, good teacher, help me. Give me the answers to life. Give me the key to life. So you can do all of that and still be lost as he was still be lost. And he goes away shell-shocked, but so are the disciples, and it leads us to our second currency. Here it is. Submitting to the currency of grace is our only hope. So he had this currency that was his real currency, his achievements, his bank account. That was his hope. Here's the second one for us today. Submitting to the currency of grace is our only hope. The disciples are shocked. It, it mentions it twice in there. Just that. They're, they're amazed. They're shocked. Why is that? Why do you think? Well, in their culture, they had a version of what we would call today a prosperity theology too, that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and blessed if you follow him. And so those that follow him would be blessed with the favor of wealth. To be wealthy, even in their culture, meant you had God's favor. So the disciples can't believe it when they hear Jesus say, look at verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And it says again, they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? 
These are some strong words by Jesus here. He says, it's hard, it's really hard to enter heaven, especially if you're rich. We want to take him at his face value, what Jesus says, and he uses some funny imagery. It's like, he says, it's like trying to fit a camel through a sewing needle. I think we have a, a picture or representation of that. There it is. It's like trying to fit a camel through a needle, not to scale, just if you didn't know. <laughs> That's what he's saying. He's being really clear. It's very hard to go to heaven. Like, a, what would be some of our phrases? Like a, snow, a snowball's chance in hell. That's kind of what we would, you know? Or a buck you see 100 yards out and you've got your rifle and he's in your sights. No chance. He's got no chance. It's not going to happen. Not going to make it. He's being clear, really clear. We don't have a good chance. But here's the issue. Here's the issue. Wealth is not the enemy here. But the self-sufficiency that it frequently fosters, that's what Jesus is getting at. He's not necessarily saying it's a sin to be rich. Because if that was the case, then what would make you good? What's the opposite of rich? Poor. You'd be good if you were just poor, if that's what Jesus was saying. If just having money made you sinful, then to be poor, poverty would make you a good person. On the other hand, he's not just saying, hey, just make sure you're generous every once in a while and you'll be good to go. He's saying that every one of us has the temptation to make something into our God. Every one of us has that temptation to make something into our God, our security. It just happens to be that wealth, for all of us, is a uniquely dangerous one. Money and material stuff is. It's a uniquely dangerous one. Why is that, do you think? I mean, the money, as we just said, is not necessarily itself the issue. It's not intrinsically or inherently evil to handle a dollar bill. It's not what he's saying. But the love of money, the self-sufficiency it affords you, the pride it fosters, and just so we're clear again, relatively speaking, we're all pretty rich on the global economy. When you have lots of stuff, you don't see the need for yourself. That's the danger. When you have lots of stuff, you don't see your need. So it's a, what Jesus is saying, it is a uniquely blinding idol. It is. Wealth and stuff are material possessions. It is uniquely blinding. It's dangerously blinding, he even says. The more you have of it, the greater risk you're at, he says. But so are lots of other things for us. It doesn't just have to be money. This kind of self-sufficiency could be even fostered in poverty. You know, it could. Or hard circumstances. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I have been through or how much I've overcome. I'm a survivor. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I don't need anybody. You can see it in that world too. It doesn't have to just be wealth. Is that you? Our victimhood status could even be it. So much has been done to me. I've been through so much. I've made it. I've survived. I don't need anybody. Don't tell me I need a savior. Don't tell me I'm not good. Look where I'm at. Look what I've come through. So our pride of success and wealth, but so could also even our lack of 
things could foster the very same thing. It's like the rich young ruler. He was concerned with outward sin, but his heart had found salvation in something else. And so again, a Christian not only repents of his or her sin, but of the good things in their life that were functioning as their saviors and replaced them with the only true savior, Jesus. His problem really, his problem really was that he didn't see his need of grace. He did not see his need of grace. He didn't see it. He was blinded to it by the things he had. And this is the only currency that gives us hope and saves us. Only God's grace, as our subpoint, saves you and frees you. Only God's grace saves you and frees you. It's like Jesus said, is saying to him, Yeah, it's impossible for you to save yourself. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle, it's impossible to remove your own blinders. It's impossible for you to make your own dead spiritual heart alive. It's impossible. It's impossible for you to manufacture your own faith on your own. It's hard to save yourself as a camel going through the eye of a needle. We want to take Jesus at his words. How do we know that? Because the disciples say, then who can be saved? Then who can be saved, Jesus? No one. It's absolutely impossible. Aren't you glad Jesus responded to their question? With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Aren't you glad Jesus said those words? And without, without that response back to that man, we are all lost. Makes you wonder what would have happened had the man stuck around for those words and that discussion with the disciples where he said, with God all things are possible, what would have happened? I don't know. Sort of speculation. Salvation is something you cannot accomplish on your own. That's humbling. He probably wouldn't have wanted to hear that. It's not something you do. It's something done for you. That's the good news of the gospel something even done to you. Left on our own, we'd be like him. We'd sit on top of our own pile of money and roll around in it till it all burned up someday. That's the picture. We would sit there too. The Christian's the one who knows my salvation is an absolute miracle. It's an absolute miracle. It's a work of God. It's an impossible thing, Jesus says, because no one is good but God. And so no one but God can give you his goodness through Christ. So it actually becomes, as we're going to see in our third currency, even worth it to give it all up if he even asked you to gain eternal life. It's our third currency today. The currency of eternal life makes it worth it. Makes it worth it. Our final currency, the currency of eternal life. Peter comes along again, doesn't he? <laughs> as he does in all these stories. And if you remember from uh, our book of Mark, Peter's the eyewitness account that Mark uses. So Peter is his source, Mark's source, as he's writing this gospel. That's one of the reasons Peter shows up a lot. But Peter shows up. He says, well, we've done this, Jesus. 
your guys sitting right here, we've done this. We have left everything to follow you. We've left it all for you, in fact. And I love it. Jesus actually finally gets to affirm Peter here. <laughs> Don't you, aren't you glad? Like, yes, one for Peter. All right. He gets one. He's got one. <laughs> Jesus does affirm Peter here. Yes, Peter. He says, yes. If you give up things in this life for Jesus' sake in the gospel, you will gain much in this life and in the life to come. With persecutions, he says. He throws that in there. With persecutions. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying it's okay to live life for reward. That doesn't sound very Christian, does it? It's okay to live your life to get something out of it. That does not sound, that might sound like nothing you've ever heard a pastor say. It's okay to live your life to get reward. It's okay. He says, Peter, you've done it. In fact, in fact you, 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 it will happen a hundredfold, or he says in there. It's okay to live for reward. Jesus knows to give up whatever currency you're living on, banking your life on, you gain everything. You get God. You get God. Here's a sub point. Change your currency, you gain everything. Whatever it is for you, money or whatever it is that, that is that security, exchange that for the grace of God, our second currency. You gain everything from whatever your currency is to the currency of eternity, living for reward. Jack mentioned a, a pastor, a John Piper, a couple weeks back, and he's got this phrase. It's kind of a weird phrase, but it, it's a good one I like. He calls it living for reward in the Christian life. He calls it Christian hedonism. What's a hedonist? They live for pleasure, don't they? Whatever, seize the day, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the hedonist. But attaching it to the word Christian, here's how he defines it. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Let me say that again. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Our greatest pleasure comes from knowing God. You can live a life to seek pleasure. Because the greatest pleasure comes from knowing the greatest being who made you. And actually, the great thing is, in doing so, that's how God receives the greatest glory. When you exchange whatever you're living for, for Jesus, you let God be God in your life. And with that comes all the reward, all the pleasure, all the blessing, all the joy of getting Jesus, getting his church, getting this family, getting their support, getting his spirit, getting his guidance, getting his life, getting his righteousness, getting his word. We could go on and on and on of the good rewards you have permission to live for. A hundredfold, Jesus says. A hundredfold. You might be thinking, I don't know, Jeff. You mean he might ask me to give up everything for him? He seemed to do that with this man. Sell it all. He might ask me to give up everything? And to do that, you know, I have to humble myself because I'm not good? And in fact, I'm a sinner who needs a savior? That just doesn't sound right. Or... And just Jesus should be enough? That's our final question. Is Jesus enough for you? 
those questions, if they're going through your mind, that's okay. I'm glad. I would want those questions. I would want you to think through that. What if he asked me to give this up or that up? Imagine, the question is, imagine life without whatever that blank is for you. You may be a Christian here today who is, who is angry with God. You might be having trouble trusting because you realize God has taken something or even someone from you. That might be you today too. Thinking, I mean, that's pretty easy for God to say, give up everything. He's God, right? <laughs> He's got everything. That's pretty easy, Pastor Jeff. I mean, God can come and say, give up everything. Then I'll know you're really trusting me. Give everything. He's God. I mean, that's ridiculous. But did you see what Jesus, did you see, we didn't, we didn't park on it at all, but we're going back to it now. Did you see how he responded to the rich young ruler? We got the verse popping up. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. This is unique in the gospel narratives. For us to see this kind of like Jesus loved him, this individual. It's a personal expression of love that Jesus shows towards this man. It's unique in all the gospels. Is it because Jesus is loving? Well, yes, he's, a lo- he's loving, he's God. But I think it's more. I think Jesus knows this man's position and he relates to him in a unique way, which is why we get this unique expression of love. Think about it. Jesus is young too at this point, isn't he? 31, is 30, early 30s. Who on earth is richer than Jesus? No one. He spoke it all into existence. Who on earth has greater power to rule with authority than this rich young ruler? Jesus, rich young ruler. The ultimate ruler, Jesus. Jesus is God. He's had everything from eternity, all things from eternity, with the Father, the Son, rich, young, ruler. He's got it all going for him. That's Jesus, too. Jesus is the rich, young ruler. And yet, what do we know about Jesus? He left all his wealth behind. 2 Corinthians says, we'll see it popping up there. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. There it is. Jesus gave it all away for you, for me. And that's what this table represents today. He gave it all away for you. I'm giving my life for you. I'm taking your punishment on to get you back, to make you wealthier than you could ever have dreamed. I'm going to do this for you. And take your punishment. Now you give everything up to follow me. He's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done, and it's right there. Not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us. Change your currency, gain everything. And we see that in him when we see Jesus, and more and more, and it melts and it warms your heart that, oh yeah, who was richer and younger and greater ruler than Christ himself, and yet he gave it all up for me. You give up even a little and it feels like you gain everything. You get God. I mean, when, we, when the gospel like this begins to melt and warm your heart, how can we be stingy with anything? 
when we see that he was the richest there ever was, and yet he gave it all up for you. Stingy with our time, or with our finances even, or with our emotions, or with our willingness to forgive, like all of those things. That's, that's gospel-centered living. That's what this table represents, that Jesus is the truer and better rich young ruler. And we saw it at the cross. So as we come to this table, we get again to uniquely probe our hearts and ask the question, if Jesus said, imagine life without fill in the blank, would I be enough? Let's take a moment as our servers come to prepare to ask your own heart that question again. And I pray to God that you see Jesus standing there saying and knowing and affirming in your heart that yes, he is enough. Let's take a moment to ponder that.